And one day, a, uh, the story goes that uh, they were at the Renton Airport where they were based, and uh, Widgeon landed, and uh, Ben and his uh, employee, Ross Mann, uh, went over and were looking at it, and they said, you know, the world needs a modern version of this airplane, and modern means it has to be composite. I mean, if, uh, you know, composite just adds so much to a seaplane, and so they just decided to uh, set out to make a modern version of the Widgeon out of composites. G'day and welcome everyone to episode number 66 of On The Step with that Mallard guy. I'm your host, Dan Bolton. On The Step is all about float planes and flying boats. To get in contact with me, as usual, my email is dan at thatmallardguy.com. Or you can follow me on Instagram and send me a message at that mallard guy. On the Step is a proud supporter of the Seaplane Pilots Association and the Seaplane Pilots Association of Australia. The SPA podcast has so many interesting conversations with industry experts. So if you are missing out on your seaplane fix in between hearing my amazing episodes, then go and have a listen to theirs because there's some great stuff on there, guys. You need to check it out. I just want to give a quick shout out to Jeff Hunt up in Darwin here who just finished his floating hull endorsement with me last weekend. Jeff has joined Matt, Ron, Grant and Ben who have all done their training on the Lake Buccaneer with me up here in Darwin since we started offering the training late last year. It's been absolutely flat out and Jeff's smile on the weekend, trust me, it never left his face as we did landing after landing on the water. He was absolutely having a ball. Now, if you're an Aussie pilot wanting to get involved in floating hull flying, Get in touch today, guys. It is an absolute blast. You will really enjoy it. Now, thanks to those uh, Spotify five-star reviews that have been coming in, folks. Uh, Keep them coming. Just scroll to the top of the page if you're using Spotify and drop me a five-star review. Uh, It really helps the show gain traction and uh, get other people involved. So drop that. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, don't forget you can leave a written review, folks. I generally read them out, so leave me a written review. That would be much appreciated. All right, on to today's guest. Now, when anyone talks about twin-engine flying boats, they think of the Grumman aircraft, the Goose, the Widgeon, the Mallard, the Albatross. Yes, okay, there are probably others that people think of as well, like the Catalina, for example. But they're all very old aircraft, aren't they? Now, we only just heard of the rebirth of the Albatross a couple of episodes ago, but that's still a long way away, and it is a huge aircraft. My guest today, though, is Walter Fellows, and he is part of the team involved in the revolutionary Gooey Duck aircraft. Slightly bigger than a Widgeon, slightly smaller than a Goose, the Gooey Duck is an all-composite aircraft bringing twin-engine flying boats into the 21st century. Let's head to the factory. Staring at a gooey duck fuselage mould laying on the ground, we'll inspect the modern materials holding the aircraft together. Walking out to the ramp, we'll examine the final product as the refueler finishes their job. Jumping into the Garmin-equipped cockpit, we'll fire up the aircraft, departing for the water to play around on the step. Right engine is turning. 12% fuel. A lot. Alrighty, welcome to On The Step, Mr. Walter Fellows, uh, all the way from Prineville in Oregon, United States, America. How are you going, Walter? Good. It's a go, mate. Uh, very excited about this chat because uh, this is talking about uh, bringing, you know, an aircraft that was, uh, or based, an aircraft that was based on another aircraft uh, so long ago, the, the kind of Widgeon-style aircraft, but bringing it back to life as a different aircraft, the Gweeduck, uh, which is you know built on composite materials and you know bringing it back to the 20th, 21st century, I guess. So I'm um, really excited to hear about uh, the story behind this aircraft, mate. But um, like I do with most guests, I want to kind of hear about your history yourself and can you give me a little bit of a background about how you got into aviation and what you do yourself sure i'd like to start the the name of the aircraft we is we is uh gooey duck okay 
Guido. And is it? Yeah. It's, it's basically a, a Native American Indian word for okay. uh, a type of clam. Okay. Yeah. And so my background is that um, uh, I've, I've always been interested in engineering and uh, airplanes. Uh, but uh, when I went to school, when I graduated from university, uh, that industry was, uh, you know, not uh, hiring. That was back when Boeing was having its troubles when the supersonic transport was canceled. Yeah. And uh, so I went into uh, finance with my math background, but uh, when I and became a pilot along the way and continued to study uh, aeronautical engineering on my own. When I retired from finance, uh, I was, uh, was an investment banker, worked around the world uh, over 15 years in Asia. Um, then I uh, uh, decided along the way I had uh, invested in a composites manufacturing company in Oregon. So that that's uh, basically my my background. Well, I should say that uh, when I finished, when I did retire, I also went back to the University of Washington and took graduate classes in uh, aeronautical engineering and applied math and mechanical engineering, you know, out of interest and maybe the thought that I would use it in a second career. Yeah. And uh, along the way, I met the developers of the GUI duck. And uh, we uh, just got along very well. The group that developed it, uh, led by Ben Ellison. Ben had had success, other successful businesses. And by the time he got the development done, uh, he uh, really didn't want to start another business. So uh, we agreed that uh, I would take it as a business and go from there and build and sell the airplanes under license to uh, his company. So you, did you have much of a flying background at this stage? Had you done any seaplane flying or did you have your license? I, I, I had a, yes, I, well, I didn't have a seaplane rating, uh, but I had about 750 hours. I don't assess the 210 for a long time. And I actually flew that Cessna 210 by myself to the Cook Islands at one point. Wow. Just for something crazy to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, but I didn't have quite the right seaplane. I didn't have the seaplane experience. I grew up in Montana where, uh, you know, seaplanes aren't a big part of the flying picture there. Yeah. And, uh, but I became really getting to know Ben and the group and living in Seattle. I, I fell in love with seaplanes and uh, I, I really fell in love with the airplane. I mean, it's just a really, really well designed airplane designed as a working airplane. And I, I was, uh, uh, you know, really admired the job that the team had done in developing the airplane. Yeah. So what stage was it at when you met uh, Ben and the other guys who were part of the group? Had they, they've obviously already built one aircraft. Was it composite at that stage as well, or was it just a, a metal kind of um, test bed? It was, a, it was definitely a composite. They basically uh, were seaplane people. Uh, ben had owned a 185 on floats, and he uh, later uh, changed that out for a beaver on floats, straight floats. Uh, and uh, they'd grown up, you know, with the twin Grumman's. And one day, a, uh, the story goes that uh, they were at the Renton Airport where they were based, and uh, Widgeon landed, and uh, Ben and his uh, employee, Ross Mann, uh, went over and were looking at it and they said, you know, the world needs a modern version of this airplane and modern means it has to be composite. I mean, if, uh, you know, composite just adds so much to a seaplane and Ben had, uh, had been working with composites. He had built a long easy, I think it was. And so they just decided to uh, set out to make a modern version of the Widgeon out of composites. 
it's interesting you say that. I mean, I just in, you know released an episode uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago about um, the the kind of rebirth of the Grumman Albatross that's coming to Australia. Mm-hmm. In fact, into the town that I'm currently flying the Mallard, which is uh, pretty pretty uh, ironic. Um, but it's um, you know these these comeback stories of some of these 1940s uh, flying boats are pretty incredible. One thing I guess with the Albatross being that 28 seat aircraft falling into the commuter category, a lot lot bigger aeroplane, maybe they they have chosen not to go composite, probably because of the size of the aircraft, I imagine. But um, it's great to see that you, like you said, you're modernising this aircraft with composite materials that are going to be a bit more, um, you know, they can handle the salt water better. Uh, like I said at the start, they're bringing it more into the 21st century. Um, what's the process? I mean, I see in your on your website there, you've got these incredible photos of the the whole side of a fuselage just laying down uh, on the side, uh, just half of it split in the middle uh, in the hangar floor there. Um, tell us a bit more about the process of making a composite aircraft. Uh, it, it looks a lot different to what people are used to with uh, the normal metal materials. Sure. Uh, yeah, it's a completely different process. Um, in in uh, a composite material, uh, you, you make a mold that's the shape of uh, the parts you want, and then you put in a fabric, a structural fabric, carbon fiber or fiberglass, uh, among others, and then you, uh, and some core material, and uh, then you um, introduce resin into it, which is basically a glue, and then set it up, and that's your part. So it conforms uh, to the shape of the mold, and so you're you're able to make uh, you know much more complex surface shapes uh, uh, with uh, with composites. Is the strength of this just as good as metal? Well, when you design it, you design it to, you know, you're following Part 23 standards. And so uh, whether you use metal or uh, or composite, you're going to, you know, end up with about the same strength. Okay. okay? Because that's, that's what's ruling that part of it. But uh, the uh, composite materials are lighter, especially carbon. And uh, also, they don't corrode, and yeah. they're they're also more durable too. Okay, because they're lighter materials as well. Does that mean that you can thicken up um, the areas, like especially around the step, and and not sacrifice weight, but have thicker um, components there to to increase strength? Well, you 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 can, um, but I think that. Uh, Again, you know, you, you you've got a you know what the strength has to be, whether it's a yeah. metal airplane or a or a composite airplane. So you just uh, use the right amount of material to uh, get there. You want it to be, you know, somewhat stronger than you need uh, for a margin. But if you go overboard there, then you just won't have much useful load. Yeah, with um with with flying boats and most seaplanes, I mean. One of the more annoying things is uh, with the metal airframes is, you know, leaking around rivets and sometimes cracked mm-hmm. bulkheads in the hull or in the floats and you have, you know, leaking issues with, with water coming into the hull there. Um, what's this like? You know, does it have bungs underneath the, the airframe like a normal uh, flying boat does or is the ability to create one whole piece make it basically immune from leaking yeah that's basically that's basically true um the large pieces uh you know single piece for like you said uh i think our whole our whole fuselage is basically a front hull and the two fuselage halves so you're talking about three halves you know three pieces yeah and then you're bonding those together um you know, and and so there, it's it's basically watertight. Um, you know, our chief pilot basically uh, says that this is just about one of the few seaplanes that you would ever want to just leave out moored. Okay. Oh yeah. Uh, right. 
Yeah, so it's a, it really, you know, I've never operated an aluminum seaplane, so I don't even know what it's like. Yeah. But, uh, they, uh, it, uh, no, I do know what it's like, you know, but, uh, but it's, uh, definitely composite is, is the only way to go. There's obviously been some, the small aircraft built with some c- composite, um, pieces as well. And I think the Russians are starting to, uh, increase, um, some of the, the aircraft that they build with com- composite material. Is this, is this the largest kind of aircraft or even flying boat that you know of that's been built with composite material? Well, I think I think the um, the Sea Star, oh yeah, the the Dornier one uh, is probably bigger than ours. Uh, uh, I'm not quite sure, but um, there 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 aren't many. I guess you could say the Spruce Goose was a composite. <laughs> yes, true. <laughs> that was okay. certainly very large. All right, you, you got me on a technicality there, mate. Um, <laughs> I yeah, just just came to mind. I don't know, a random thought. But. Yeah, tell us about the the flying characteristics of this aircraft and handling. Um, c- can you share a bit of uh, what it's like to to handle this aircraft on the water? Sure. So um, when when Ben, uh, I'm going to go into history a little bit here. Yeah, please do. But Ben and his team took. Um, I, I, I somewhere around 25 to 30 years to develop this airplane. Okay. Wow. And uh, they did a lot of very pioneering things. Okay. Uh, but uh, the the uh, the twin Grumman's uh, had a couple of issues, uh, and especially the Widgeon. The Widgeon, um, you know, uh, has a divergent porpoising problem. Uh, the divergent pitch stability. So if you if you get it in the wrong realm, it'll start porpoising, and uh, it, it's very difficult to get it out of that. Okay. okay. Yep. And then um, the both the widgeon and the goose uh, put a lot of water through the props and and engines, and uh, and as a result, the maintenance costs are very high. And so those are two uh, problems that uh, Ben set out to fix. And it took him a long time. I think he said it was somewhere around half of the total development time. And uh, Ben and his team are, are consummate engineers and they, they test and experiment and they read all the literature. They talk to the leading experts in the field, Ben, studied all of the different uh, seaplanes, including, of course, the twin Grumman's and the Shin Meiwa, and uh, talked to uh, Thurston uh, from the, um, the lake uh, aircraft. And, uh, uh, and then they found a series, and then also uh, being in Seattle, he had quite a few neighbors who worked for Boeing and Ben has a real knack for turning the things that he, the things he works on are fun, and he has a way of, of uh, turning them into community projects. So he got a, a lot of help from people, yeah. Um, yeah. from very very talented uh, engineers. But they he went ahead and um, and found all of the NACA papers that uh, had studied hull design and. Uh, found what he uh the right design for for a better performing hull this is for the divergent uh uh pitch stability problem yeah and he made a quarter scale model using chainsaw motors and uh and he was able to put different hulls on the bottom of that and re recreate the uh the geometry of the different aircraft and he uh, put the hull on for the widgeon, and uh, the the water handling characteristics matched exactly the widgeon uh, at full size. Right. Uh, so he, he knew that his uh, model and testing were valid, and then he put on his new design, and it it fixed the problem. Okay, and. Um, so we don't have the divergent uh, pitch stability problem. Um, and on the on the uh, spray through the props, 
um, Shin Meiwa had, had developed a spray slot system that worked very well for keeping the water out of the props and the engines. And so Ben adopted that. And uh, so those are the two really big improvements in terms of the, the uh, performance as a seaplane. And then uh, you've gone with modern engines as well. Like it is, you know, comparative to the, the goose and the widgeon, it kind of slots in between the two kind of uh, gross weight size doesn't mm-hmm. it? it's just a bit heavier yes, than the widgeon yeah um, a bit lighter than the goose uh so you, you can't kind of go with some some rotax engines which they in a way they kind of look like it if you look at photos but they are actually significantly big engines aren't they yes they are yeah they're they're the um the lycoming navajo engines basically wow. which are designed to run up to 350 horsepower and uh, it's a very uh, beefy engine. Um, there's a lot of them around, a lot of experience with them. Yep. And, uh, and they also come in uh, left and right turning, so you can have counter-rotating props, which is actually a big help on the water. Yeah, right. Actually, yeah, I can have a look at that in the photos now that they're doing that. Does that make... I know there's been some, I think the Seminole or Seneca, one of those has um, those engines as well. And I've heard it can be a bit hard to find the engine that goes the other way. Uh, is that an issue that you guys might run into in the future, do you think, having that set up? Uh, no, we, we haven't run into that. Uh, we're using, the, the, the engine is uh, still very commonly used and, uh, and okay. uh, it seems to be used a lot in a, in Canada, northern Canada, and uh, Alaska, uh, so we um, uh, we haven't had any issue finding them. In fact, we can get them either new from Lycoming or, you know, pretty much, you know, as new as you want to get. And as you mentioned there, that would really change the water characteristics, wouldn't it? Because, like for example, in the Mallard. Um, there's a lot of left-hand turning tendencies that we experience because of the amount of power that's coming out of the both those engines uh, being the mm-hmm. conventional um, yeah. clockwise turning, looking out from the cockpit there. So I imagine all of those things like P-factor, the uh, the prop wash going over the tail, all of that kind of stuff is going to then basically negate itself, isn't it, and, and disappear because of uh, those counter-rotating engines. Yes, and then the other thing that um, they found is um, uh, reversing propellers for the p- piston engines. And that is an amazingly nice feature for a seaplane. You know, it's, oh, yeah. it's like imagining you, your boat not having a reverse on the propeller, you yeah. know, and, and you're trying to dock. I mean, it's uh, uh, so that that's uh, that's another really big plus for the airplane. Yeah, one of the things um, that I love looking at with the Goose is, you know, they're still operated by wilderness seaplanes up in Canada there, and but they have to come into these docks that are built for beavers or, well, there's I don't think there's really a dock built for a flying boat other than maybe something like a V V shaped dock or um, something that you dock onto the nose because of um, the way that the engines are, especially a twin flying boat. But I love watching the goose come in with the the retractable float on one side and the planes leaning over on this weird angle. It looks looks so awkward, but it works. Uh, you guys mm-hmm. have got the retractable floats as well. And tell us about what it's like to dock this thing. I imagine because the goose doesn't have uh, reversible pitch, that this thing actually would be pretty easy to dock, having the reverse capability and also the retractable floats. Yeah, it 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 really is. I mean, it's. It's still, uh, you know, a bit of a challenge uh, uh, finding suitable docks. Uh, you know, okay. boat docks usually are just don't work very well. But it it it's the another big feature of this airplane, and and this is by choice, of course, is that it's a tailwheel airplane. And so, when you uh, want to beach it, or when you want to actually just uh, uh, kind of park it on the beach, on the edge of the the water on a beach. You can, um, uh, you know, the tailwheel design uh, uh, helps with that. So you just drive it straight up out of the 
out of the water? Yeah, you dive it straight out of the water. But the other thing that that you do is uh, in uh, our uh, head of flight standards is uh, a fellow named Burke Meese, who you might have heard of before. He's uh, he was a line pilot for Penn Air flying the uh, Grumman Goose in the Aleutians early in his career. Oh, wow. And now he's a, a captain with a major airline. Um, but, you, you know, uh, when you when you come into those villages uh, on uh, basically what you do is uh, you, you don't always have a beach that's suitable enough to just taxi out. But what you can do is you can come in uh, at, a, at an angle and start probing the bottom with your wheel. And as soon as you, you, you find firm ground, you immediately turn and go back out so you don't get stuck. Uh, but then you can keep doing that until you find a point which is about a fuselage length away from where you can wade. And then you just, uh, as you hit the firm ground, you just spin it around. And then your tail is, uh, you know, you can just have a pair of waders on or somebody can have uh, some wooden boards uh, from the shore and just put it out to the airplane so you can get out. Yeah, right. And you can do that with a pretty, much softer, you know, ground underneath the water. What about the avionics setup, mate? I, I know that, like being a, a new aircraft, you have the options now to integrate some pretty uh, incredible technology up the front. So, what kind of setup sure. have you got there? And does it uh, is there any option to be able to get this thing IFR as well? Oh yeah. So yes, you you, uh, you certainly can get it IFR, and um, the buyer uh, has their, uh, you know, the. Um, can choose their avionics. Um, it turns out, though, that um, uh, the the glass uh, cockpits that you get from you know a single supplier like a Garmin um, end up being less expensive than putting in the steam gauges. Okay. And it's kind of hard to believe that, but it's just that um, you know it's. When you do steam gauges, uh, the overall radios may be less expensive, but by the time you hook them all up and get them all talking to each other, yep. you know, there's a lot of labor involved. Well, I guess they're becoming so simple, aren't they? Like it's just one screen and maybe one com box, something like that. Um, yes. It's all integrated in, this, in the one unit, isn't it? So it's, they're just becoming so simple yeah. as well. Yeah, and, and we the other thing is... Um, there's some safety features that are really nice as well. So uh, the uh, we, we work uh, closely with uh, another company called uh, RDD in uh, Redmond, Oregon, that makes the LX7, which is a rework of the Lancer 4, a turboprop version. And um, they're they're very they they um, very close to Garmin, but the there's a so most of the air, the airplanes now have a, an upset uh, recovery feature. It's a blue button, and so if you do get in the clouds and uh, you're not exactly in a good orientation, uh, you can press the blue button and have it level itself. And wow. um, and then, but now. Uh, the auto land feature has been introduced for uh, certified airplanes and uh, Garmin is just starting to make that available to its uh, um, bigger experimental customers and that'll be a, I think a huge feature because it it kind of answers the whole question of you know the ballistic parachute I think in a much more satisfactory way so obviously, then it's got some sort of uh, autopilot capability as well. I imagine to be able to uh, do auto land and erect itself if you get lost in cloud. Is that right? Yeah, and I think it, it's. I'm, I haven't really been able to experience it firsthand, but I think it also communicates with ATC in some way. Wow. Yeah, I guess it would, uh, have, it would have to when it makes sense too, wouldn't it? Yeah. 
if you're going to go land at an airport somewhere. Uh, it should have to do that. And then Garmin has introduced another feature. Uh, it's basically uh, connected with their autopilot. And um, it's, uh, it's a, a multi-engine, engine out uh, feature so that it, uh, it apparently identifies, helps you identify the uh, uh, the failing engine and uh, take the steps that you need to take quickly. I guess you could either it can either identify it for you, uh, or it can actually automatically, you know, uh, uh, make adjustments. Yeah, wow. It's funny so, hearing that kind of stuff because I mean, this is probably not a topic that you're all over. You might be. I'm not sure, but um, things like going back to that initial twin engine training where you know you can, we get in a, an old baron or you know seneca seminole that kind of stuff and you know it's the old mixture up pitch up power up identify dead leg dead engine all that kind of stuff that's almost becoming redundant isn't it with the way that these systems are now coming into place and we're going to have to then start training pilots in different ways for the way that technology is adapted to these types of failures so is there any difference in the way that you would teach or Burke would teach the, the training on this aircraft for a new pilot um, with these features, do you know? Um, I, I don't think so. Um, he gives uh, ratings in the Goose up in Anchorage uh, using uh, John Fletcher's uh, Goose, and uh, he owns a widgeon himself. Um, the, 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 the thing is, is that the GUI duck, uh, at 6,000 pound gross weight has good engine out performance. Yeah. Okay. And we, we, um, uh, we offer, we support two basic engine packages, either, uh, a normally aspirated version, which is very common for like the Southeast coast of Alaska, or if somebody needs to be able to get over you know, an 8,000 foot mountain or something engine out, then there's a turbo normalized version as well. Okay. That's the same engine with the turbo in it, is it? Yeah, but it's a, it's not, um, it just brings the, the power back to, it doesn't boost it much beyond, uh, uh, normally aspirated, just maintains it. Yeah. Okay. So it's a little easier on the engine. Yeah, I, I think our feeling is is that uh, uh, you know uh, a, a reliable engine, a very reliable engine, makes a uh, a, a much better seaplane than having a lot of extra horsepower because uh, seaplanes are inherently draggy. I mean, ours is a lot less draggy than most airplanes because of the clean composite airframe, but still, you know, uh, when you push the power way up on one, uh, you're just not going to get the, the performance out of it that you would in a Baron or, or, or a land airplane. Oh, of course, but you know, and it's a flying boat as well. It doesn't have the floats hanging out yeah. uh, like a, a float plane does, so naturally the flying boats are less draggy. Um, one thing you, you look at when you see this thing, a picture of this thing, is um, it has huge windows, and I imagine that's mm-hmm. probably got to do with the fact that it is composite build and you can um, make, as you mentioned before, you can make shapes that are a bit um, different and maybe stronger if you stretch them out or something like that. Um, Tell us about what it's like to be in the cabin of the aircraft and how many seats it has and what it's like the view out from from these beautiful big windows. Sure. Yeah, well, the cabin is actually the size of a small King Air cabin. It's very large. And uh, so while it's uh, it seats six, it could easily seat eight. Yep. Um, Is that total, or you mean and, just six in the back of the uh, from the total? Okay. Uh, those are totals. And so in flight, uh, we can get up and change seats and move. You know, um, because we've got a lot of space between the seats. Uh, so um, it's very roomy. It's roomy enough for. Uh, two to three people to use it as a simple camper. Um, and uh, the big windows are in, so so when the airplane was first 
developed. Uh, ben worked with um, a fellow at Boeing who uh, um, had uh, been in charge of producing the PBY for Boeing uh, under license from Consolidated during World War II. They built wow. them, it was called the Cancels, and they were the, um, so they were built up in uh, Vancouver, British, or yeah, Vancouver, yeah. British Columbia, and he was in charge of that. So he basically made Ben start by just laying out the cockpit in the view. So the airplane is just an, you know, a really pleasure to fly in, and it uh, will make a very, very good observation airplane. We expect that it'll be used for that later. It could be like marine fisheries patrol and that sort of thing. Uh, and it's also got very long range, which would support its use as a patrol airplane. Yeah. But it all, the, the whole layout started with making sure that the view was good uh, in the air, over the water, and also even uh, when it's on the ground on its tailwheel. Okay, so more of like a you know one of the issues with tailwheel aircraft is you can't really see over the nose. You're talking uh, from a flight crew perspective, they can they have a good view over the nose uh, when taxing the aircraft on land. Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's right. But yeah. but they made sure. I, I heard that Walter Beach did that same sort of thing with the Bonanza when it was developed. He made the engineers just put some chairs down and make sure that it was uh, you know a comfortable cabin and that's exactly where this started but the guy who assisted ben you know um he was developing the airplane that was going to be used during the war for all kinds of different things you know uh view and, and uh was an important part the place to start the the windows and and the kind of view but the look of it reminds me a little bit of the air van um, i don't know if you know about the gia air van it was i think mainly built in australia um, down in Gippsland, but um, it was like basically equivalent to a 206, a little bit bigger than a 206 with eight total seats, but these big kind of bulbous windows as well that gave good mm-hmm. sightseeing for uh, passengers and they've become quite popular uh, aircraft for sightseeing operations up in the, so the Whitsundays or um, down in Fraser Island in on the east coast of Australia. Do you think that this could potentially be something that is is seen more in Alaska in the future with you know those sightseeing operation operators that uh, that really want to have a good view but then also need the water access? Um, I think at least in the United States and I would say probably most places in the world we would need to be right now we're experimental only. I think okay. that you'd have to have a normal type certificate for that. But yep. there's no reason why we can't be type certified. Um, it, the airplane was designed with uh, uh, by very good uh, consulting engineers uh, guided by Ben, uh, and it was designed to Part 23 standards. And uh, during the test flight, uh, it was found to comply with Part 23 standards, you know, except in some very small differences which you know can be fixed so i think that uh you know if the if the demand is is sufficient you'll you might well see a certified version someday so at the moment it's just uh experimental for private use and that's the plan uh, into the future until maybe the demand increases uh yes awesome um so how many aircraft have actually been built at this stage and and is there plans to build more based on sales or have you got more orders coming in uh, in the future? Yeah, we have, um, uh, right now we've sold uh, one and we're just closing a second sale. And uh, we have a lot of interest and we haven't really pushed the sales um, because uh, we expect um, the sales to be quite good. And so, it's really important for us in making the first two airplanes uh, that we we get tooling that uh, we can use for volume production, one thing. But uh, another factor is we want to make sure that we have the repeatability uh, with our tooling that you would get with a certified airplane so that each air... So if you were to buy some spare parts for us, if you dinged something, 
you know, you'd be buying the same park. Yeah. Uh, and um, and then what? You know, there was quite a gap from when they developed the airplane and we took it over, or when we started the um, the kit plane business, and um, we made a decision. They had a a lot mostly fiberglass with uh, key structural parts being carbon and uh, we're mostly uh, carbon fiber. We've retained a little bit of uh, fiberglass in the hull area uh, and also in key places um, to prevent metal on uh, carbon corrosion where we've got some metal parts some controls and stuff but the uh, uh, basically uh, we've gone to uh, carbon. We didn't want to probably will we will uh, replace the fiberglass uh, in the hall area with carbon at a later time, but we didn't want to have to redo all of the impact resistance testing that they did because that's not the kind of thing you can just look up in a book. Yeah. you know so. When, you, when your airplane is uh, at 40 knots on the step, you don't want to hit a two by six and have yeah. it shatter. Well, that was going to be my next question because yeah, you mentioned about you know having repeatability and having parts available for, for future clients. Um, mm-hmm. Because the, I mean, the photos that I saw, as I mentioned on your website, about just half a fuselage, just like, it's like someone's just cut like a, the fuselage of an airplane straight down the middle. And then laid it on its side. That's what it looks like for those listening. Mm-hmm. Um, for if you were to do that, I mean, flying around and you hit a hit a stump or something, and, and put a hole in the fuselage, what's the what's the fix process in that? Like, surely you can't just go oh, here's another half a hole or half a uh, you know to fix that one small small dent. How do you fix carbon fiber like that? Um, there's a very well de- developed. Um you know, a set of uh, procedures for that, okay? Um, There's a lot of uh, composite aircraft flying. There's not nearly as many seaplanes, but there's a lot of them flying. So so they have uh, uh, procedures. It depends on, it's it's a lot like repairing aluminum. You know, it depends on how big the damage is and and does it it, uh, also damage the structure underneath. Um, yep. you know, uh, so, but, you know, just as a little side note, uh, our wing is designed so that we have, a, a leading, we have three spars. So we have a front spar where the, where, where the engines are placed. And then, uh, on the outside of that, we have, uh, uh wing skins, just leading edge wing skins. And uh, seaplanes frequently get a little pole damage, you know, in that area. And the the airplane's designed so that if uh, you get some damage and uh, you haven't breached the uh, front spar, then you can just do a field repair with some fiberglass you could buy at a, you know, a hardware store, you know, in a a, uh, coastal village in Alaska or other places. And then, and then once you got it home, it can be ex- inspected and uh, a lot, maybe that's uh, sufficient repair if it's small enough. If not, then it can be ground out and, you know, uh, another repair done. So obviously there's other parts of the airplane that can't be composite. Like, is there, is there some small pieces around the build of these materials that have to be metal and then is there a process for making sure that they aren't corrosive in a way or like because obviously one of the big sales points of this aircraft is the fact that it is composite and 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 can handle salt water a lot better how do you Uh mitigate those small small components sure so the the i'd say the the landing gear is a is a big item okay and those are in uh, salt water um the um uh they've been designed so uh they're made out of a a corrosive resistant aluminum that's powder coated and then um it's uh the uh, chrome uh oleo struts chromed oleo struts 
chrome and stainless steel. And those actually uh, are based on the design from the um, the the CB and the twin B. So okay. um, and they hold up very well in salt water. Uh, we don't really have to do any special maintenance there. Uh, usually, uh, if we've been out flying, you know, in the ocean, uh, we might uh, just land in uh, some fresh water and put the gear down and rinse them off a little bit and take off and go yep. home you know, to the home airport. Um, so, so that's uh, those I'd say would be the the biggest item. But then. The other thing would be like your control columns and your, um, you know, your your cables for the trim and for the controls and, um, you know, the flap actuators and uh, actuator rods. Uh, but uh, the airplane is uh, it's designed with that in mind to keep those uh, dry and because the uh, of the compo- the tightness of the composite material, it, it hasn't been really difficult uh, to do that, uh, to keep those uh, from corroding. Uh, with respect specifically to the carbon fiber parts, what you do is if you have to mount a, a motor or uh, some bracket, some metal uh, fittings uh, to the composite part, what you do is you you basically um, uh, you 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 put in an area of fiberglass in the carbon fiber part, so it isolates it from the the material. Uh, I, actually, you don't really need to do that for a land airplane. Uh, a lot of time, you know, a lot of times the epoxy is enough to uh, isolate it, but uh, and maybe stainless steel uh hardware but we we use uh, stainless steel hardware uh but we also isolate it because we know we're going to be in in some pretty corrosive salt water it's funny because um you know i i fly well in australia we generally fly in salt water all the time because we don't have mm-hmm. the lake um you know volumes that you guys do in the states and all of the commercial operators that fly seaplanes here are generally in saltwater areas along the the coast of australia um mm-hmm. so it's it's interesting that you know a company in america has kind of gone this way when you have such great access to fresh water you know all the time was there was there some spots that maybe came to mind that you wanted to access more that kind of motivated more of this composite build or do you think just in general that's the way that seaplanes should go in the future well, I, it's it's quite interesting, you know. In in um, Alaska, there's a lot of seaplanes, and uh, but very few of them, uh, you know, owned by private uh, individuals for 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 their fun. Uh, but very few of them ever land in salt water. And the twin Gremmons now are are uh, getting rarer. They're they're classics. They're um, most of them have had a major restoration and the owner after that never flies them even in in salt water again a lot of times doesn't even fly them in water again yeah, but yeah. especially salt water we expect that uh, uh, our one of our our newest sale is going to Alaska so we expect that uh, this is going to open up a world up there of uh, people wanting to now take have seaplanes that they can use uh, on the coast um so the and then the water in alaska is not especially the seawater is not especially corrosive but the water say down in the bahamas is a very corrosive it's also the environment around it isn't it like you know the the cold versus the humid hot air he and right and i think the salinity is higher maybe that's because of the higher temperature i don't know and i would imagine that uh your your seawater up around the Great Barrier Reef and and uh, the Northern Territories must be pretty corrosive as well. Yeah, certainly. Well, yeah, that's my experience in seaplanes. Is uh, yep, they've all got corrosion issues and and they all need a lot of effort maintenance-wise afterwards. You know, uh-huh. like, I mean the Buccaneer stuff that I'm doing at the moment, doing some training in the Buccaneer in Darwin here, and it's it's a solid hour of work after your flight to um to you know to start corrosion proofing. 
um, yeah. straight away with the with the freshwater washdown, with the grease, with the ACF fifty and other mm-hmm. lubricants because you know it's not it's seaplane flying for me especially has always been that it's not just park the plane in the hangar and pull your headset out and put the chocks in and walk away. Um, it's always been okay. We've we've had our fun out on the water. Now it's time to look after the aeroplane and and spend a bit of time making sure that it's not a rust bucket the next time we come to it. So, um, yeah, interesting. Sure. Hopefully, we we might see some more of uh, these composite aircraft in Australia. Yeah, um, I I we had an operator tell us that in the Bahamas, uh, if you if you took a new caravan down there and you just flew it there. Uh, even with uh, 135 daily maintenance, uh, the airframe would be uh, would only last about 12 years. Right. Uh, and so what they do is they uh, apparently they they bring in aircraft from you know uh, a land environment and just fly them down there for a couple of years and rotate them out. And that's just a land plane, you mean? Yeah, that's and, just the salt air. Yeah. You can, you know, it's it's easy to imagine because with aluminum, you've got sheets of aluminum that are overlapping uh, where the rivets uh, um, go to hold them together. And uh, that's where the water causes all the problems. It gets between those sheets. So it's understandable. So where can we find the, the gooey duck at the moment, mate? Um, is it is it around flying up up the top of America somewhere, or you know, is it on display anywhere for people to come have a look if they're interested in buying it? Do you do road shows with it? Like, tell us about yeah. the, the the main type of flying you're doing with it. We 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 do. Um, ben has been um, uh, especially good about promoting his his airplane, and uh, so we go to a lot of shows. We go to. Uh, Oshkosh, we've been to Oshkosh a few times, uh, Sun and Fun. Uh, we uh, went almost every year for a while to the Alaska Airmen Show, which is a really big show. Uh, that's in uh, the beginning of May up in uh, uh, the Anchorage area. And then we, we fly it around a lot and we give a lot of rides. If somebody uh, gets in touch with uh, uh, me, you know, uh, right now the marketing is all going through me. That'll probably change here in a bit, but, uh, we can arrange for you to see the airplane. And if it's not in annual or some other, uh, issue, then we can probably give you a ride, let you fly it. Uh, yeah, so it's definitely available. It's kept in a hangar at Renton airport, which is in the Seattle area. That's where the Boeing builds. It's a 737 aircraft. And obviously, you got Seattle um, Kenmore Air there as well in Seattle. So, big seaplane yeah. uh, location. That's right. One of our uh, one of our, our line pilots uh, also flies for Kenmore Air, and we're very close to them. Anything else you want to share about the aircraft, mate? Any interesting stories you've had with it so far? Any adventures that you've been able to take it on or uh, had some good memories with the plane so far? Um, I have many. Um, I, you know, I get to, you know, I've been working on it for a long time and, uh, I think the Alaska Airman show is probably the, uh, we flew up there, uh, just before COVID the, 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 the we had a, we missed a couple shows here because of COVID, you know, a couple years of shows, but we yeah. flew up to Campbell river in uh, British Columbia. And we met up with uh, Mike Rinker in his goose, and we and Burke was there, and we flew in formation with Mike Rinker's goose all the way to Anchorage. Oh wow! And that was uh, that was really uh, uh, that was really memorable. It's just fun flying, yeah, in company in general, isn't it? But then to have a, a goose by your side there, that would be pretty epic. Right, and the 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 only difference was when we. Stop for gas. He was taking two or three times as much as we were. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why you laugh at him, mate, and you say, Haha, "No, you, d- you never laugh." At beautiful goose like Mike Rinkers, you know. <laughs> Actually, I'm just going through your your Facebook page there now, and I can see some incredible photos. It must have been on that trip. It's, it's in September, uh, and there's some amazing white snow-capped mountains in the background with a, yeah, with a goose. That, it looks that was, similar. Um, 
Yeah, mm-hmm. similar paint scheme actually. In fact, the kind of white aircraft uh, with the red stripe. They look um, right. almost if you if you look at the the little tiny icon, you can't really tell much of a difference. But um, yeah, that would be a pretty incredible experience to to get around like that. Did you yeah. get them on the water together as well? Uh, let's see. No, because Mike didn't land his on the water that trip. Oh right. Uh, he does land having... his on the water though. He does. Oh, does he? Okay. Yeah. And it's been uh, it's been a uh, um on the front cover of the water flying magazine. Geez, that was back in 2013. Yeah. So it's... yeah, it's um Burke uh, is uh, one of their uh, writers, you know, and so yeah. And he he just did a series uh, on uh, a guy named Doug DeFries's, uh, uh Turban Goose. Uh, they okay. took it for a trip out to Iceland. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I saw yeah. that. On, yep. So, yeah, Bert, I think Burke is considered the person you would go to if you want to learn to fly one of these airplanes. I mean, there's other really good pilots, too. We have, you know, several. And and, and our, our chief pilot, uh, Ross Mann, who actually was a partner in the first airplane, and he's working with us now uh, in building the uh, the production ones. Um, he's got more hours in it than anybody else does. And he's a very good pilot. And then we, Karen, we have another pilot, Karen, who is the one who's a line pilot for uh, Kenmore as well. And she's also a first officer with a major airline. Yeah, that's awesome. There's, um, it, it, It's come to me that this aircraft's pretty old, isn't it? Um, well, it's been around for, what, over 10 years now? Is that correct? Uh, it's been flying for uh, about 14 years now, and okay. it's got about 1,400 hours on it. So it's it's quite yeah. well tested. Yeah, nice. Well, yeah. hopefully we'll see some, um, you know, more around in the, in the future as you guys start to roll these more off the production line. We've had some um, good interest from Australia. I guess one of our, one really memorable experience was... Uh, you know, Michael Smith, he, he made his around the world trip and he stopped in Seattle for a little while to get recharged, you know, before uh, uh, making the, the flight out along the Aleutians back for his final leg. I don't know and, why. I mean, you'd be pretty, you'd have a lot of energy, wouldn't you, after sitting in a sea ray flying around the world? I don't know why you'd need to recharge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, he he stayed with me for a while, you know, and oh, we, we enjoyed uh, some of the finer things in Seattle, like uh, you know, like the the oysters and uh, Chablis wine and things like that. Um, before he headed out again, but uh, the uh, he, we got a, a chance to get him uh, to have him fly the gooey duck. Oh, lucky man! And uh, yeah, so are, was, are you a bit disappointed that Michael went on and bought? You know the Russian sea bear. Oh, I know. Been... Yeah, I talk to yeah. Michael frequently. <laughs> and but are you disappointed, was... mate? Say, come on, where's get the gooey duck, Michael? Not not the sea bear. I I think the um the thing is the gooey duck is a very large airplane and uh, yeah. and I I think that I I'm pretty sure he's going to own a gooey duck one of these days. Okay, we'll put the pressure on him. He's a big fan of the show. In fact, he was the one who. Who got you and me in touch a while ago? So yes, uh, that's be right. Listening. And uh, and and yeah. Michael, come on, get the gooey duck, get bring it to Australia, mate. I know you're listening. I I would love to do that. I mean, I flew down there in a two ten. I didn't get to Australia, but at least I got uh, close to New Zealand there in the Cook right. Islands. And uh, I love flying uh, down in the South Pacific. Oh, I love it. It's just wonderful. Yeah, perfect spot for oh. the gooey duck. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Walter, I normally finish my episodes with the splash and dash questionnaire. There are a bunch of rapid fire questions of all about seaplanes. Um, mm-hmm. My first one is normally, what's your favorite seaplane? I think if you didn't say the gooey duck, I'd, I'd probably uh, jump off my seat. Um, yeah, so we're going to accept that one. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Um, the, the next one is, um, where's been the best place that you've actually taken this thing for a landing? Is there some sort of memorable lake, um, memorable river or open ocean areas that uh, that have really been like that was just incredible and this is this is why we've got this airplane. Yeah. Well, we're, we're a community, so I'm going to use one where I wasn't there. 
Okay. But uh, when we had the uh, total eclipse on the east in the western part of the United States, they flew the GUI duck. This occurred in August, and they flew the GUI duck fully loaded down to this place called Unity Reservoir, which is about 7,000 feet high. It's quite high, and it was a very hot August day. And uh, so we've got this incredible picture of the airplane, you know, with the uh in the in the middle of the, the the height of the eclipse uh but then afterwards many of the seaplanes had to offload people and have them driven down to a lower level airport to be able to get off of the the reservoir and the gooey duck just got right up on the step and off no problem <laughs> show of force so, yeah show of force really and that's what normally uh, aspirated engines so yeah, well, that's um. I just found that picture on your uh, on your on your Facebook page, so I'll, I might reshare that as one. Well. It's a beautiful photo, and it looks like it's beautiful. almost complete. Well, that was taken by yeah. Ross Mann, the the our chief pilot. That's that's a pretty good answer. I like that. I've never had that one before. You know, a, land, a water landing location where where there's been a full total eclipse. That's pretty epic. Yeah. Um, well, I I guess another question I always ask people is that you know if you've you got a glass out day on a lake. What aircraft would you want to be in? And and this probably also goes with rough water, open ocean. What aircraft would you want to be in? Are they are they just as good at handling the rough water as they are handling you know glass out? Well, the this is good for for glass. Okay, glassy water, um, as good as any of an airplane gets. You know, um, the uh, you need uh, if you're gonna. Uh, if you want to have a chance of landing in open ocean, uh, you need to have an albatross, okay? And even then, there's a lot of days you won't be able to land out there. Yeah. Um, but basically, uh, they've landed this airplane in three-foot seas. And, uh -huh. uh, and But what happens is uh, you can... Uh, Burke flew it in the Aleutians for five years, which is some of the roughest water flying there is you know uh so you can find points and places to land but this this airplane uh, handles rough water extremely well for its uh for its class okay yeah fair cool um another couple of questions i ask is an ideal seaplane to fly around the world in and an ideal seaplane to take out on a sunday afternoon would this tick both of those options as well yes it would First of all, it's got a 2,000 mile nautical, 2,000 nautical mile range. Okay, uh, with the fuel capacity that we have in it, uh, and it's very fuel efficient. So I'm going to fly mine to Hawaii uh, in a couple of <laughs> years, and then because um, I don't have one yet, we're going to build a yeah. factory one after a couple of years, and then uh, uh, just look at some of our. Bahama pictures for the Sunday afternoon and you'll see the pilots up lounging on the top of the wing. Oh, and, great stuff. Uh, you kind of answered my piston versus, uh, sorry, my glass cockpit versus steam question. So uh, it sounds like uh, you're going to well, go glass anyway, but but what do you prefer? Uh, I, I actually, there is a nuance to that. Uh, I, I, basically seaplanes, I think should be first and foremost, good VFR airplanes. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and just because glass happens to be less expensive and, you know, has easy IFR capability, um, I, I, I want to build mine with the small glass, uh, screens. Okay, the same capability will be there, but I don't want to be staring at a bunch of, uh, glare, you know, LED-type lights when I'm flying, yeah. except maybe at night, okay? Yeah. Uh, I want to look out the side and see the whales below you, you know, not some linking thing about an approach that I'm about to make somewhere. True, out. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, they're, 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 they're really... Flying a, a seaplane in Alaska, you're in 8,000-foot mountains. This is in the southeast coast. And you got to fly like a, like a boat, like a fast boat. A lot of times you're much safer off being 500 feet over the water 
than uh, being up in the clouds somewhere with 8,000 foot mountains around you. And, and, and then you're going to see everything when you're down low like that. And, uh, yeah, that's, absolutely. that's the whole, you know, reason why you fly a, fly a seaplane. Exactly. Great stuff, Walter. I've really enjoyed having a chat about the gooey duck. Now I'm pronouncing it correctly after this episode and hopefully you, people you are, in the future are as well. Appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> Must be one of the most frustrating things with the name of it, uh, correcting everyone when they, well, it's probably oh, just an Australian we've thing, had, how terrible. We've had a lot of discussion about that. Yeah. It was named okay. before I joined, but now that everybody knows it, it's wonderful. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. All right, mate. Um, All right, thanks very much for uh, yeah. for taking the time out and uh, and spending some time sharing uh, the story of this aircraft. And like you, thank you. I'd like to thank you for coming on the step. Oh, uh, I'm my pleasure. I'm I'm really uh, you know honoured that you uh, that you invited us to share it with you. Perfect, mate. Hopefully one day I'll be in the in the cockpit with you or Burke and can yeah. give it a, a good a good test. Yeah, don't don't wait too long to do that, you know. No, <laughs> don't worry. I want to get over there and, and fly all all the great American planes that are that are over there waiting for me. So yeah, we can probably help you get connected with uh, most of them. Perfect. That sounds good. All right. All right. Thanks, Walter. Cheers, mate. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks a lot. And that's the show for today, folks. Thanks so much to Walter for taking the time to share the gooey duck story what a magnificent aircraft i certainly would love to get my hands on one in the future that's for sure don't forget to share the episode if you loved it folks leave me a review on apple podcasts or spotify show your support through patreon come and join those folks you know adding a bit to uh, the show by donating a few dollars a month that's always much appreciated but most importantly folks don't forget to join me next time when we go on the step